Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Reading from Acts chapter 17, verse 1 to 21. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying... This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd." And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, They let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new.
me. Hello, hello, hello. No, yes, cool. Very good. Well, if you don't already have your Bible or device open to Acts chapter 17, do so uh, and keep it open. Um, well, welcome. I'm very thankful to be here with you this afternoon. Bit of a sweaty, hot afternoon, but here we are. So thank you for coming and joining. It is a nice breeze, though, with the windows open. So praise God for that. So yes, we're going to be in, in Acts chapter 17. But before we get there, I just want to have a little recap of uh, last week, what Tony took us through at the end of chapter 16 there. So first, we, we learnt that God had prepared the way for Paul and Silas to meet Lydia, and she comes to know God's son, Jesus, and is saved and baptised with her household. Oh, sorry, it's a bit small. Um, secondly, uh, that there is opposition to the gospel. Truth brings opposition, but we were challenged to stand firm when that comes. Thirdly, the jailer and his household were saved. And again, God had strategically placed Paul and Silas in prison for the salvation of the jailer and his household. Number four, again, similar, standing up for the truth because the truth sets us free. And lastly, number five, we learned that and we were challenged with some ways to encourage and strengthen other believers. And some of those ways might be prayer, teaching from God's word, or maybe even just a meal together. Before we jump into to the chapter today, uh, it's a doozy, so let's pray together um, and commit it to God. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you are gracious, and you are faithful to us. Father, thank you that you speak to us, from your word, you teach us, you correct us, you guide us, and you lead us. So, Father, I pray that you would do that now. Guide me as I speak. Uh, may my words uh, honor you and bless your people. Amen. So, in the late 1940s, uh, the United States government commissioned William Francis Gibbs to work with the United States Lines to construct an $80 million troop carrier for the Navy. So the purpose was to design a ship, uh, it'll be up there in a minute, uh, so the purpose was to design a ship that could speedily carry 15,000 troops during times of war. By 1952, construction of the SS United States was complete. The ship could travel at 40 knots, or about 81 k's an hour, and she could steam 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. She could outrun any other ship and travel non-stop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. The SS United States was the fastest and most reliable troop carrier in the world. The only catch was she never carried any troops, at least not in any official capacity. See, the ship was put on standby once during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, but otherwise she was never used in all her capacity by the US Navy. Instead, the SS United States became a beautiful luxury liner for presidents, heads of state, and a variety of other celebrities who traveled on her during her 17 years of service. As a luxury liner, she couldn't carry 15,000 people. Instead, she could house just under 2,000 passengers. Those passengers could enjoy luxuries of 
695 states rooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theatres, five acres of open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Instead of a vessel used for battle during wartime, the SS United States became a means of indulgence for wealthy patrons who desired to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. See, things look radically different on a luxury liner than they do on a troop carrier. The faces of soldiers preparing for battle and those of patrons enjoying their bonbons are radically different. The, con uh, the conservation of resources on a troop carrier contrasts sharply with the opulence that characterizes a luxury liner. And the pace at which the troop carrier moves is by necessity much faster than that of a luxury liner. After all, the troop carrier has an urgent task to accomplish, right? The luxury liner, on the other hand, is free to casually enjoy the trip. David Platt writes, when I think about the history of the SS United States, I wonder if she has something to teach us about the history of the church. The church, like the SS United States, has been designed for battle. The purpose of the church is to mobilize a people to accomplish a mission. Yet we seem to have turned the church as a troop carrier into the church as a luxury liner. We seem to have organized ourselves not to engage in the battle for the souls of peoples around the world, but to indulge ourselves in peaceful comforts of the world. This makes me wonder what would happen. What would happen if we looked squarely in the face of the world with approximately 5.5 billion people that do not declare Jesus as their personal savior? And we decided it was time to move this ship, the church, into battle instead of sitting back on the pool deck while we wait for the staff to serve us some hors d'oeuvres. That was an excerpt from David Platt's book, Radical. And friends, we've been studying through Acts, watching the church grow, watching the church develop. And we've been following this theme of to the ends of the earth. And I read that to you as we come to Acts 17 because I think it reminds us we, we're still on this mission of to the ends of the earth, aren't we? We're still on that mission. And over the next two weeks, we're going to continue this, looking at to the ends of the earth, but we're going to do it by looking at the gospel and culture. Every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every nation needs the gospel. The gospel is not acultural, as if it hovers above culture and is devoid of it. The gospel is deeply enculturated. And we, as evangelists, as the church going to the ends of the earth, are ourselves encultured, part of the culture. There is no form of presenting the gospel that hovers above the culture devoid of it. We have to pick a particular form that speaks to one culture, but may not be able to speak to another culture. Paul faced the challenge of contextualizing the gospel in his day, and we do too. So in part one of gospel and culture, we're going to see Paul speak the gospel message in three places, and we're going to look at three responses. Simple, three places, three responses. Firstly, jealousy in Thessalonica 1 through 9. Secondly, eagerness in Berea 10 through 15. 
And lastly, curiosity in Athens, 16 through 21. So Paul, he's left Philippi and headed about 160 kilometers away to Thessalonica. I want you to notice that he passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Why? Don't know exactly why, the passage doesn't tell us, but in 1b in in chapter 17, it says that there was a synagogue of the Jews there in Thessalonica. What was Paul's custom, remember? It was to start in these synagogues and then move out from there. That was his sort of go-to. So maybe there was no synagogue in these other cities that he passed through, I don't know. Or maybe the Spirit was leading him not to stay in those places, but to move on. Whatever the case may be, Paul ends up in Thessalonica, a free city. Thessalonica had the right to self-government on a Greek model. The poet Antipyre of Thessalonica called it the mother of all Macedonia. It had a major harbour and was a key link to the Bosporus and the Black Sea. Its population has been estimated between 20 and 100,000. And as a central province, it was loyal to Rome. And Luke notes in in verse 6, provincial governors ran that city. So what approach does Paul take when he gets here to Thessalonica? Again, Paul enters the synagogue and he presents his message. Paul's message is what? It says it there, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. The message of Christ crucified and raised from the dead is core. But how does Paul present that message for the people of this bustling city of Thessalonica? How does he present it? As a little side note here, but an important one, says it was necessary for Christ. Right? I don't know if you remember in, in Mark 14, 36, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Friends, if there was any other way for salvation, God would have worked it. But he worked it through his son Jesus for us. And it's a necessary message, Paul writes here. So how does Paul present this necessary message? He does three things. He reasoned, he explained, and he proved. Let's look at these. So firstly, he reasoned. And we get our English word for for dialogue from the Greek word used here for reason. So Paul begins by having a dialogue about Jesus, the Christ, with those listening in the synagogue. And he does it from the scriptures. So simply, that's our first application, right? Just start the Jesus conversation. Start the dialogue. Secondly, he explained. Paul then explains, or more literally opens up the reasons to them. Paul is opening these reasons or this dialogue about why Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead to them. What does it mean for Paul to do this? This means that Paul presented the message with simplicity and with clarity. That's our second application. Present Jesus with clarity and simplicity. 
whether speaking to the most intellectual person on the face of the planet or not, I believe it is important to show Jesus with simplicity and clarity, present him simply and clearly to those around us. Thirdly, Paul proved. So the preceding two points allowed Paul to prove the message he was presenting. The root word for prove here is to put, place, or lay something out. Paul is able now to lay out for them that it was necessary for Christ, for the Christ, Jesus the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead. And that Jesus that he was presenting, he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. So that leads us to our third application. Jesus, as the Christ, can can be proven from the Scriptures. He is no myth or figment of our historical imagination. He can be proved from the Scriptures. It can be laid out from the Scriptures. So what does this mean for, for us and gospel and culture? Friends, as we start the Jesus conversation, opening the Scriptures, whether that's physically or from here, with clarity and simplicity, we can prove that Jesus died, rose again, and is the Christ, the anointed one who takes away the sins of the world. So that's how Paul approached presenting this message here, firstly, in Thessalonica. Now, what is the response that they give him? It's twofold. Some are persuaded, yes, but some are jealous. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. When we read verse 4, we see the gospel was received by men and women and people of various classes and various nationalities. It was widespread. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8 it's so good that we can like, compare these Pauline letters with, with Acts. But 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8 says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, friends, we are entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become dear to us. Can you hear Paul's love for the believers there in Thessalonica? Paul knew that he did not have to trick or deceive them, but only please God and seek to bring him glory. Ancient Greek culture, though, holding to truth and honor quite closely, 
and having a high view of it, they also admired deception. For example, Julos was the personified spirit of trickery, cunning, deception, craftiness, treachery, and guile. But Paul understood that the truth of the gospel message speaks to every nationality, every culture. And that's another reason why Paul takes the time to reason with them, explain and prove. No trickery needed. Presenting the gospel with clarity and simplicity. Meeting them where they're at. What's the other response we get here in Thessalonica? But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken the money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Sounds a little bit familiar to last week. Can you maybe sort of see Paul and Silas's heart going a little bit when, when this starts to happen, right? Paul and Silas were thrown into prison after healing a demon-possessed girl that was being used for profit. And what was the accusation? These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Although this time... In Thessalonica, it's fellow Jews that are attacking them, not locals angry that they're losing money. I don't know if these Jews had heard what was going on in in Philippi, but they are about to take a a leaf from that book for sure. These Jews essentially find the low life of the city and start a mob, setting the city in an uproar. As some of you might know, Alicia and I lived in, uh, in Hungary uh, for about two years. And whilst we were there, it was in the middle of the 2015 uh, Syrian refugee crisis when they're all flooding into to Europe. There was a point where the refugees wanted to make their way uh, over to Germany. However, they got stuck not really where they wanted to be, but between the Serbian and the Hungarian borders, which old Yugoslavian border there. And so I was out there at one point with uh, a few others helping with food and, and basic needs and things like that. And there was a few that were, had a bit of medical experience and they were there helping with that as well. And while I was out there, it came to a point where a small group of men gathered at the Hungarian border, these men there. So this is actually taken on September 19th, 2015. I was there that day. So a small group of men gathered at the Hungarian border. And I'm not joking, within what felt like about five minutes, all of a sudden, tires were burning, tear gas was being thrown, water cannons, people were ripping stuff off the buildings that were close by and throwing them everywhere. You could say there was a bit of an uproar, very quickly. It only takes a few of the rabble to cause big problems. And the Jews know this, right? So they rock up to get Paul and Silas from Jason's house, but they're not there. 
So instead, they drag Jason and the others before the court. And what do they say? What's their, what's their accusation to these guys? These men who have turned the world upside down are saying there is another king. His name is Jesus. I want to go back for a moment to this word, jealous, that the Jews were jealous. This can also be translated as zealous. But read uh, Deuteronomy 32, 21. Speaking of the people of Israel, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. We see the words of this passage ringing true here. We see men, Paul and Silas, they turn their world and their beliefs upside down. God was using the, the salvation of Greeks, of Gentiles, to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that they would turn to him. But I want to suggest that, that the message of Christ crucified and raised from the dead to redeem all mankind from sin and death is actually turning the world right side up. Since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, God has been working his plan his plan to right the world again. Friends, we live in, in a culture that has turned itself upside down, but it thinks it's right side up. When you and I insert the gospel message into our world, people are going to think we're turning everything the wrong way around. I don't know if you've experienced this in conversations. What does that teach us about the, the gospel and, and our culture? I think it looks like finding ways to show people the ways in which God takes what our culture believes is upside down or back to front and revealing God's perspective on that. For example, maybe our world believes you find value and self-worth in whatever makes you feel good or whatever suits you at the time. The gospel says... Your true value, your true worth is found in knowing Christ. And as Philippians says, that Christ has begun a good work in us and he will be faithful to complete it. That seems a bit upside down. That seems a bit crazy to the world around us. But in fact, the lens of the gospel, this perspective, it turns things the right side up. You and I... We are created in God's image, and we are designed to walk in relationship with Him. This relationship was fractured by sin. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, our relationship is restored, and we are free to see that our value doesn't rest in how we feel in that moment. Our value doesn't rest in what somebody else says or tells us our value is. It rests in Christ and what he's done for us. So the response in Thessalonica was that some accepted, but many of the Jews were provoked to jealousy. The next stop, as we head along, is Berea. So under the cover of night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. 
Perhaps Timothy accompanied them, or he may have joined them at Berea later, as per verse 14. Berea was about 46 miles southwest of Thessalonica on the eastern slopes of a mountain. Berea was also on the way to Achaia, the province that corresponds to southern Greece today. And Paul, as his usual custom, again, where does he go? Synagogue? Yep. Good. Still like. And it says that those there in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Seems a little bit harsh, but we'll unpack that. The expression more noble can also mean more generous or of a more noble attitude. Because what did Paul do in, in Thessalonica? He reasoned, he explained, and he proved from the scriptures. And here, I have no reason to believe that Paul is not doing the same thing. However, instead of all the onus being on Paul to prove from the scriptures, what happens? What's the response in Berea? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what were these things that they examined? So surely, simply, if the Bereans are being compared to those in Thessalonica, these things would include Christ's suffering, his being raised, and his kingship. So let's look at this response from the Bereans. Firstly, and most simply, they received. Friends, if you are unwilling to receive the word of God, you will be unwilling to allow it to have any transforming effect on your life. Jeremiah 15, 16 says this, and I love this, this picture. Your words, God's words, were found and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Jeremiah 15 is all about Jeremiah's crying out to the Lord on behalf of Judah. And I love what, what Spurgeon says about this, this passage in Jeremiah. He says, I've said that Jeremiah lets us into a secret. His outer life, consisting in his perpetual faithful ministry, was to be accounted for by his inward love for the word which he preached. It is a very different thing from saying, thy word was found and I did admire it. Thy word was found and I did criticize it. Or thy word was found and I did divide it and make a pretty good sermon. Slight abbreviated from uh, Spurgeon. Friends, the people of Berea first received, or to use Jeremiah's metaphor, ate the word. If we eat well, then we are nourished and sustained. If we don't eat or we eat poorly, we'll starve or become unhealthy. Apply it. Receive the word. Friends, it is vital as a follower of, of Christ. Second, eagerness. Not only did they receive the word, they received it with eagerness or willingness or readiness. That's sort of the three ways you can translate that. Psalm 25, 4 through 5 says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. When Paul shared from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ and that he had to suffer and die and was raised from the dead, you might be, that might be getting old, no? It's repeated a lot in scripture. 
And friends, as, as a side note, as believers, we need the gospel preached to us all the time. We might have accepted it, but we need it preached all the time. He suffered and died and was raised from the dead. And this created what? What did that message create in them? An eagerness. Does the word of God ignite an eagerness in you? Might I suggest that this is probably one of the best responses you'd want to hit, see when presenting the gospel, is this eagerness, this eagerness to know more. I want to talk about John Patton for a minute. He's relatively unknown among Christians today, and he served for 10 years as the pastor of a growing Scottish church. But God began to burden his heart for the New Hebrides, a group of Pacific islands filled with cannibalistic people and no knowledge of the gospel at the time. He set his heart on one of the islands in particular. And 20 years earlier, two missionaries had gone to that same island and they were killed and cannibalized there. So it was no surprise that many people dissuaded or tried to dissuade Patton from even the thought of following these missionaries' footsteps. And Patton writes this, Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument always was, it's a very persuasive one, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. John Patton replied to this man, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Church, Paul had just been beaten in Philippi. Paul had been pushed out of Thessalonica. And now he can see the eagerness from those in Perea. What an encouragement to the heart. This eagerness to know Christ and to make him known should not just be with the one searching for truth. But like John Patton, when you and I, when we read the scriptures and understand what Christ has done, do we have an eagerness, a willingness, a readiness to know Christ and make him known? So thirdly, what does this lead to? After they receive the message with eagerness as preached by Paul, they examine the scriptures. Let me give you an ex a few examples of this word examine. So Luke 23, 14 says, After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Acts 4, 9, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to this crippled man, Acts 12, 19, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Acts 24, 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. This word, examine right, it carries a legal sense of an examination. One uh, of C.S. Lewis's quotes from uh, God in the Dock says, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. 
See, Paul was not concerned that these Bereans heard what he said and began to dig into the Scriptures daily, it says. Because he knew that the things that he was saying was the truth. Paul knew the truth that he was presenting. And he knew that they would find it as they examined the Scriptures. And the result for these guys was that many, many believed through examining the Scriptures. So what does this account of the Bereans receiving the Word with eagerness and examining the Scriptures tell us about, again, the Gospel and our culture? I believe it shows, one, that Christ as Saviour and God's plan for redemption is clearly evident from Scriptures. And two, that we should never over or under-adapt the message to our culture so that it becomes devoid of solid biblical truth. When presenting the gospel, if we, one, under-adapt the gospel message, we'll have no essentials that, we'll, we'll have non-essentials that are confusing and sometimes unnecessarily offensive, resulting in things like legalism, amongst others. Secondly, if we over-adapt the gospel message to the culture, it will lack the essentials so that, so that it is of no offense when it should have been necessarily offensive. And that can result in syncretism. Just mash it all together. A balanced approach in presenting the gospel has the essentials that are necessarily offensive, but doesn't have non-essentials so that you don't confuse or unnecessarily offend. And that is contextualizing the gospel. For example, Acts 4, 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Our culture might say, or the culture that you're in, might say, there are many ways to God, salvation, heaven, nirvana. You just have to find what works for you, right? If we are to under-adapt the gospel, when we, when we meet that, we might just say that, no, that's uh, not correct. You haven't considered the way in which the Old Testament is laying out God's plan for salvation through Jesus? Just accept it. That might be under-adapting. Over-adapting might say, well, the Bible does say that there is only one way to God, but God is also kind and forgiving. So if you believe in a higher power and just do your best, you'll be okay. That would look like over-adapting. A balanced approach may look like, as Piper puts it, bringing attention to the amazement that God would supply any way of salvation at all. Not that he didn't supply ten ways, but that he would supply any way of salvation to be reconciled with him. We can shift the amazement away from the fact that there is only one to the fact that there is one. There is a way to be saved. That might be a balanced approach. And that's going to look different in each of our conversations and each question that comes up. But at the end of the day, my prayer for us and for myself is that we would be led by the Spirit, faithful to the truth of God's Word in our conversation. And just a heads up, we're going to see a pretty good example of that next week as Dave takes us through the rest of uh, chapter 17. But Paul has seen the people saved in Thessalonica. Then he's been chased out. He has seen the Bereans 
love and passion for the word of God resulting in their salvation and has been chased out again by the Jews from Berea. And he heads to Athens, leaving behind Silas and Timothy. So while the Bereans were eager to hear and study in order to find the truth, the Athenians, you will see, were probably more curious to hear something new. There is something enthralling, writes John Stott, about Paul in Athens, the great Christian apostle amid the glories of ancient Greece. Of course, he had known about Athens since his boyhood. Everyone knew, everybody knew about Athens. Athens had been the foremost Greek city-state since the 5th century BC, even after its incorporation into the Roman Empire. It had retained a proud intellectual independence and had become a free city. It also boasted of its rich philosophical traditions inherited from Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, of its literature, of its art, and of its notable achievements in the cause of human liberty. Even in Paul's day, it lived on its great past and was comparatively a small town by modern criteria. But it still had an unrivaled reputation as the empire's intellectual metropolis. So what's Paul's approach here? How does he approach Athens? He's waiting there for Silas and Timothy. And when I first read this, I, was just, I saw this word waiting, and I was like, oh, it seems a bit strange for Paul to be waiting somewhere. That's not really seems his style. He's just straight into it everywhere he goes, right? But he's waiting. But what happens while he's waiting? His spirit is provoked within him because of what? He sees a city full of idols. This word provoked comes uh, from the word for something sharp or something sour. Like when you eat something sour, you might get a little in your jaw there. When I was maybe six or seven, I don't remember exactly, I stepped on a piece of glass that got stuck in my foot. And I had either thought I got it out or I just ignored it. And it didn't take long before I had what I now know is called infectious lymphangitis, right? So all you doctors will know what that is. A red line that travels from the wound towards the nearest lymph glands, right? Because I left it, I had to go and have the glass dug out of my foot. I had to have antibiotics, and it was a much more painful experience than just dealing with it sooner. Paul, he's there in Athens, but he's not swept up by the city, by the architecture, by the broad spectrum of beliefs. Paul sees that the city is full of idols and he gets this sharp prodding from the spirit like a piece of glass in the foot. And unlike young Daniel, it causes him to do something immediately. The question comes for me and for you, what is the sharp poke for you? I'm sure you could think of 10 ordinary things off the top of your head as I did that provoke you in general life. Maybe it's dirty clothes on the floor. Maybe it's someone cutting you off in traffic. Maybe it's someone eating pizza from the crust first. Yes, I've seen people do that. But what about things that matter? When you look around today, what really gets you going? What will it take to put you into gospel action mode 
or to reference our opening story, what does it take to put you into troop carrier mode instead of luxury liner? I want us to consider that, right? Really think about what provokes me, what drives me, what gets me going as individuals, but collectively as a church. Let's be praying about that in your families, in your small groups. What gets us going? Let's not sit like a church that's designed as a troop carrier. Let's not sit as a luxury liner. So what does Paul do with this provoking? What does he do with the provoking by the Spirit, but does he just continue to wait? No. He goes to the synagogue and to the marketplace. When was the last time we read that Paul was in a marketplace? Last week, right? Paul and Silas are dragged into the marketplace before the rulers and are subsequently beaten with rods. Jeff Myers says, engaging in a culture that could hurt us requires strong convictions and an unshakable trust in God. Paul this time is taken into the marketplace by the Spirit of God provoking him. Paul goes out and he opens his mouth to give testimony of what Christ has done. And in Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, first the Jew and then the Greek. Do you know what? I've, I don't think our culture is too different from that of the Athenians. When you look around, do you see a culture that is interested in hearing a bit of everything, as long as it pleases or entertains them? When you look around, do you see a culture that is full of idols? When you look around, are you provoked to go to whatever your marketplace is and reason with people, presenting Jesus the Christ to them? The marketplace might be your neighbor, it might be your workplace, it might be your family. And do you notice who Paul speaks to when he goes out? He goes to the religious in the synagogue. He speaks to the average Joe passing by in the marketplace and to the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. It cannot be stressed enough that the saving power of the gospel message is accessible to everyone in every culture. It's for the churchgoers and the religious. It's for the intellectual. It's for everyone. So what is the response? Paul approaches Athens in this way, going to the synagogue and the market after being provoked by seeing this idol, worship within the city. And what's the response? Again, it's, it's twofold. Some say he's a babbler. And some say he is a preacher of foreign divinities. But both these culminate in Paul being brought to the Areopagus because all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling and hearing something new. But I want to look at this first response, babbler. It's essentially an Athenian slang. It literally is the meaning for a seed picker and was used for, for various birds that go around and scavenge seeds. You might know that we have chickens um, at, at our house and they have their own little pen area, it's pretty good size. But when you open that gate and they go out, they're mental, especially one of them, Becky. And they just pick everywhere, picking up seeds or whatever they can find, destroying your garden, 
all the things. So they're out there, right? But chickens aside, one of the ways that this was applied to people was with teachers who, not having any original ideas in their own heads, unscrupulously plagiarize from others, picking up scraps of knowledge from others until their system of belief is nothing but a mess of everything, right? So essentially, these people are saying, Paul doesn't know what he believes. He's just conflating a bunch of different ideas. That's the first response. Next, they say he's a preacher of foreign divinities. And very quick word on the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Epicureans pursued pleasure as the chief purpose in life and valued most of all the pleasure of a peaceful life. And the Stoics believed that everything was God and God was in everything, whether good or evil. Dave will expand on that a bit more for us next week. But the philosophers come along and go, oh, this guy is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This could be something new for us. Let's take him. Let's hear some more. What I do want us to, to focus on and draw our attention here is the last three verses. And I want to contrast these to the previous responses in Thessalonica and Berea. Verse 19 And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul was not babbling. He was teaching sound doctrine. Paul was not just there to present another myth or abstract philosophical idea to bring them pleasure. He was there to present the truth. As Paul presented the gospel in Thessalonica and Berea, so he does here. But instead of the Athenians delving into what Paul was teaching with an eagerness to know the truth, they either thought he was crazy or were curious to hear something new. So what does this response of curiosity mean for the gospel and culture for us? For the Athenians, we're going to see the way that uh, Paul presents the gospel for them next week. But I want you to take this as well. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. Turn there if you like. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will throw up. For, oh, sorry, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. 
But to those who are called both Jews and, and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, we have to be prepared to engage our culture knowing we will receive these kinds of responses from them. What are you saying? You're a foolish babbler. I'm interested. Tell me more. I'm angry. I'm jealous that you're challenging my beliefs. And in conclusion, part of being prepared for these responses, it's knowing our culture and being able to, like Paul, reason, explain, and prove from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ and that it was necessary for him to suffer and to rise from the dead and do it in a way that engages our culture without over or under adapting the gospel, creating not a mere curiosity in Jesus, but an eagerness to receive the gospel message and dig into the scriptures. For again, the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Let me read that again. Part of being prepared for the responses of our culture is to know our culture. And like Paul, to be able to reason, to explain and prove from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ and that it was necessary for him to suffer and to rise from the dead and do it in a way that engages our culture without what? Over or under adapting the gospel. Creating not a mere curiosity in Jesus, but an eagerness to receive the gospel message and dig into the scriptures. And may we not forget the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, again, you're good and you're gracious and you're faithful to us. God, you have placed each one of us in different situations and scenarios, with different people groups, with different cultures. Lord, and you call us to engage in that culture for the sake of the gospel. We're not separate from it, Lord, but we are a part of it. We're here. This is the culture that surrounds us. So God, may we engage it for your glory, Lord, for the furthering of your kingdom. God, lead us by your spirit into these conversations. Lead us by your spirit, Lord, to speak your truth from your word. May we not sway from it, Lord. May we not water it down so much that it's just not effective. God, but may we stick to the truth of your word and present that to those around us. God, and we pray for the people here in Newcastle, around us, God. We pray that they would come to know you. God, use us in the lives of those around us so that they may know you. And then go and make you known. Go before us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings. 